where it all started was, I guess, going back to my childhood, my dad hated complaining. And by default, I hate complaining. And I see a lot of complaining with no action right now. And, you know, as you and I discussed the landowner private versus public issue there, I thought, well, it's time to take action. Enough bickering and moaning and complaining. You know, Rocky Mountain Elk is doing good work. There's lots of other organizations out there, but I saw a little niche where instead of turning it back over to BLM and having it managed however they want to manage it, hunters and anglers are really the ones that fund conservation. So let's hold on to these pieces and make improvements and work with ranchers. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. The American Icon Company. Is this like uh, like American Idol? Is it like some kind of singing competition? Exactly. If you are a hunter or an angler, <laughs> you have to sing in order to win these landowner tags, fishing trips. You know? Sure. And then we give them to you based on merit. You know, if you're really good at singing or playing the guitar, right? You win. You win a landowner tag. Yeah. There's going to be a a board of conscientious hunters and and anglers and conservationists and uh are we going to do it with, with like our back turned to them and then like have a button or something oh I definitely i mean we i don't, don't have television <laughs> oh man okay jokes aside the american icon company pretty exciting stuff something you've absolutely poured your heart and soul into and the last time i saw you was at the western hunt expo is that right yeah yeah when you were asking me some questions about sort of the the conflict between public land and private land and wildlife damage and some of this, I could tell that you were really passionate and it was coming from it was coming from a deeper place than just curiosity. You turned that into absolute action that has tremendous momentum right now. And we launched a couple of days ago. People have a lot of questions. And like you and I talked about briefly, we love that. Like it is so important that your supporters know what they're supporting and they're not just doing so blindly. They're not just trying to win a free ball cap or something like they're really, really interested in caring about where that money goes and what it does. So there's been a lot of questions that have come up. Well, let's start with the foundation and say, you know, what is the American Icon Company? Yeah, so I guess a little bit of context. I got invited out with my buddy to go to a lodge last November, and the lodge owners had us out to kind of chit-chat about new ideas for sportsmen and things, and we kind of threw around some ideas. And shortly after, I saw a post by you that mentioned how terrible uh tenants wildlife were and i kind of started thinking about that and i had recently started hunting i'm i'm a long time fisherman pretty new hunter and 
I thought, you know, we hear so much moaning and complaining about private versus public. There's got to be some kind of a solution to that. So you and I kind of chit-chatted a little bit, threw out some ideas, and I just thought, man, there needs to be action taken. So what I kind of thought up was instead of bickering and fighting and pointing fingers, you know, both sides have a valid point. The ranchers say, hey, these wildlife come on my property. They ruin my fences. They eat the food that I'm giving to my livestock. And it costs me a lot of money. And this is how I feed my family. And the hunters say, well, the North American model of conservation says that wildlife are a public resource and I should have access to that. And I just thought, let's find a balance where we can work with both sides. So what I came up with was working with ranchers to open up access on their property and purchasing properties to put in trust managed for public access and wildlife habitat. It's genius. When you were talking to me about taking taking this on, I couldn't see a solution. And and it takes a lot of a lot of humility and creativity. What I've seen from you personally in your fly fishing is brands of creativity that I've never seen anybody else try before. Um, you're very willing to think about every single aspect that you possibly could in aspects of fishing that, that people don't even consider. And that's like where you're fishing, how you're going to get there, um, how you're going to spend your time while you're there. And then once you're on the body of water, being incredibly creative about how to actually catch the fish, you're the most creative angler I've ever met in my life. And I think that there's something special about the way your mind works for solving problems that lends itself to taking on a problem as big as this. And, and this is a big one. So one of the things that often comes up with landowners who are experiencing damage from wildlife is the public will say, well, why don't you just let us come, come hunt them? And there's a thinking that if you've got a hundred head of elk coming in and raiding a haystack or eating in an alfalfa field or something like that, you know, as, as a hunter, I might think, well, if I come in and shoot one of those elk, then the rest of them will run off and, you know, problem solved. Or if nothing else, then there's one less elk. If there's a hundred head and, and this is a common enough number and you go in and you, you shoot one, you just reduce your damage by 1%, which is, is not necessarily meaningful to that producer. Okay. What does happen is when that herd of elk takes off, man, they take out fence. Like it is a swath of devastation for as far as they feel like going fence costs between 10 and $14,000 a mile. And it's really easy to lose a quarter mile all at once when a herd of elk takes off. So while that hunter might feel like, yeah, I, I helped, I did my part. I shot a cow elk. Like, yeah, you, you did. You tried, um, your heart was in the right place, but man, that just cost me like $14,000 and the elk are going to come back tomorrow, you know? So it's, it, it's just kind of, it's kind of complicated. It's super complicated and, and people have a lot of feelings about this. Oh man, people are so, so emotional about it. And I think those emotions are only stoked right now because we're seeing, you know, increased push by guys like Mike Lee here in Utah to sell off our public lands. And I think guys are starting to feel squeezed. And so they're getting real, real emotional, you know, and point creep is something that I'm really just starting to understand. But, you know, when it takes you 25 years to draw a covenant tag, you know, you feel like, hey, my opportunities are pretty limited and it's real easy to fall into the trap of pointing the finger at the, the rancher or the landowner and say, well, you, you are diminishing my sporting opportunities here or my access. And, you know, most ranchers really have nothing to do with that. They're just trying to get by, you know, as you know, way better than I know. Ranching is not an easy game. It's not something that has these huge 
profit margins where (laughs) you're just crushing it out there you mean it's not all like uh kevin costner floating around in a helicopter and (laughs) you know having having housing for all their employees (laughs) that's that's not the way that i see it but maybe you've had a different experience (laughs) yeah i mean you just you can't see my my helicopter in the background the uh the six ranch helicopter is elsewhere today yeah right (laughs) Uh, no, man, it's tough. It's tough. And, you know, 1.5% of the population in America is, is involved in agriculture. So 1.5% of the population is feeding the rest. And uh, the average age of the farmer or rancher in America right now is 57 and a half years old. Really? Holy crap. So not only is it a massive responsibility, like no, no farmers and ranchers, no food. Pretty simple. That's pretty simple. Uh, not only is that a huge responsibility and a gargantuan amount of work, but it's a huge amount of work and responsibility that's being placed on a geriatric population. And uh, yeah. if you're 57 and a half years old and you're mad at me for saying geriatric, it's out of respect. It's out of respect because I know that you've worked at this your entire life, your entire life you've worked on this how this torch gets passed is, is also incredibly complicated. So finding ways to make, make ranchers and farmers more profitable um, and reduce their burden of wildlife um, or at least make them more efficient throughout this, that, that just makes everybody happy. Uh, It's a good thing. Something that we should all be striving to do. In Oregon, um, and this is a statistic pulled from the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, even though I I question it because it's kind of round numbers, and I always question round numbers whenever they come up in science, but Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife said that uh, 70% of all wildlife in Oregon spends 90% of its time on private land. That actually would make sense to me. What's interesting, in addition to that, is around 60% of Oregon is public land. So what's the real difference? And there, there's a few things that go into this, a few considerations with the private public land thing. Montana is a wonderful example of it. A lot of the reason that more wildlife is on private land in Montana is that it's better habitat, but it's not just in how it's managed. It's that better habitat for ranching and farming also meant better habitat for wildlife. So what got settled Prior to, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, putting massive amounts of of land in uh, in the government's control, you know, all kind of all the good stuff was taken. It was settled. It was it was made private already by homesteaders. So that's another another part of it. So the the sixty percent of Oregon that is public, yes, it's inferior habitat. It is managed in an inferior way, but it also didn't have quite as good a ground to start off on. So yeah. um, by managing for wildlife on private land, you can do some really remarkable things. And that's, that's something that's, that is exciting to me about American icon as well. Oh man. I'm, I'm super excited about that. And as I look at it from just like a, a wildlife standpoint, right. Ranchers are making water improvements they're putting food out for their livestock and they're not like, if I'm a wildlife and I'm going on to private ground, I'm for the most part, probably not going to be harassed. There's water there. There's food there. That's a good place to be. If I go out on the public ground over there, people are shooting at me. There's four wheelers buzzing around. I might get hit by a freaking semi truck going down the highway. I mean, it seems pretty logical when you look at it, why wildlife would want to be on private ground. And so with American icon, we can go in and, and do food plots. We can do water improvements and do these things on private land so that the wildlife have a place to be and manage it. So, Hey, we get the best of both worlds. We're going to allow access when it's needed for hunters and anglers but we're going to limit it other times, you know, let's say during a, a migration during the winter when life is pretty tough and we'll give them a, a space to be, 
with some habitat improvements there. It's really what a conservationist hunter or angler would want public land to be like. Um, And and a lot of people tend to come into it with a, with a really selfish look and they're, they're, they're self-interested in like what they can take. Um, But most people are not like that. So while some people say I should be able to go out there whenever I want. um, Yes and no. Like, yeah, you, you should be able to, but you should also have the discretion to know now is not the time. And not everybody has that kind of control. So what we're seeing now is due to that lack of discretion, there's a lot of sections of public land, entire states that are closing off massive areas during some of these critical times, especially for uh, shed hunters and things like that. That's a classic example. So there's areas I know of in in Oregon and Utah and Idaho, um, Wyoming, where they say, look, yeah, it's public land, but you can't go in there and shed hunt until this date and this time. And then you can see the reason why, because when that, when that clock strikes the hour, it's a flood of people, you know, it it looks like a land grab. It's like, yeah, this, this is why we have to do this. Like guys are kind of being nuts right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's tough. I was just talking to our realtor yesterday. We were out looking at some property and he was saying they're working on a project to protect uh, calving grounds for elk and they they're the city or town wherever they're at is wanting to build some mountain bike trails and he said the problem with that is there's going to be a lot of guys riding their bike in this area when the elk are in there trying to calve and they're already struggling as it is so he said we've made a lot of progress by setting up this uh, charity but he said we still have ways to go and I thought, what a cool project to help the wildlife out. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the Starkey Experimental Forest did a a study a few years ago, well, over a decade ago now. And it was on how different vehicles um, or modes of transportation affected elk. So they used horses, they used walking, they used uh, ATVs, and they used mountain bikes. And mountain bikes of all those are... Uh, like one of the worst for how far elk run after they Mm -hmm. encounter them and then how long before they get settled in again. And one of the reasons is that they are so quiet. Bikes are quieter than walking. So, you know, these, these super ninja, you know, Baku electric bikes, like you can really sneak up on elk with them. But when you do, you're moving at the speed of a predator, you're moving very quietly and their reaction to that is is proportional and, and enormous like they want to get way away from whatever that was mm. and uh yeah so well a lot of people think well a mountain bike is going to be you know a lot less harmful than than a four-wheeler science says no uh mm. because uh you know with a four-wheeler they can hear that combustion engine coming towards them um so yeah. they get a little bit of a warning and then when they see it they're already aware it's not like they're going straight from relaxed to alarmed so yeah yeah oh man that's super interesting tidbit about mountain bikes that nobody uh, ever wanted to know but now you do <laughs> derek we've had a a bunch of questions in the last couple of days that have rolled in and it's important to me when people send questions like this in because they took the time to write it something that they care about uh would you feel comfortable answering some of these Oh man, I'll answer whatever I possibly can. Okay. And you know, I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers. Sure. But yeah, let's yeah. do this. Okay. Um, is American Icon a nonprofit? Currently, it is not, but it, we are working on a 501 3C uh, chapter of it. Okay. So what what we're kind of doing right now, and I want to be like a hundred percent transparent with this is currently as we get hunting tags 100% of the profit goes back into conservation and funding our mission however the ranching efforts that we're going to do ranching being restoring like bison and doing uh, a giveaway to win a hunt we're going to put back into 
you know, our salaries and, and things like that. But at some point here soon, we should have the charitable portion of it up so that we can divide them out and we can make that public knowledge of where your dollar is actually going. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, and that helps people that want to support too, because um, then their support becomes a, a tax write-off, which is great. Yeah. I feel like the government gets plenty of uh, tax dollars right now. And you know, if, if uh, these dollars are going to support wildlife conservation, then maybe the government need, doesn't need those. I don't think they need them, but maybe it's weird. <laughs> uh, does American Icon only purchase land and put it in a public trust, or do they work with private landowners to improve their land, put conservation easements on them, open them to the public, et cetera? Yeah, so we're going to do both. We're going to work with ranchers that want to be a part of it, and we're going to allocate funds to them to make improvements that will benefit not only their piece of property, but the wildlife coming in, uh, as well as purchasing property that we will set aside in trust. So it's going to be both. And that's, to me, really the heart of this. Where, where it all started was, I guess, going back to my childhood, my dad hated complaining. And by default, I hate complaining. And I see a lot of complaining with no action right now. And, you know, as you and I discussed the landowner private versus public issue there, I thought, well, it's time to take action. Enough bickering and moaning and complaining. You know, Rocky Mountain Elk is doing good work. There's lots of other organizations out there, but I saw a little niche where instead of turning it back over to BLM and having it managed however they want to manage it hunters and anglers are really the ones that fund conservation so let's hold on to these pieces and make improvements and work with ranchers yeah smart i feel like that answers the question well uh is the money to purchase these properties only coming from the membership fees so i've raised about a million dollars through investors and then the memberships right now and as we add products as well so eventually we're going to do hats t-shirts hoodies as well as you know down the road we want to work with other companies let's just say you know you work with cryptech right we want to yeah. strike some kind of a deal with like cryptech where when we do a giveaway cryptech will put a, a portion of all of their sales back to American icon that goes directly into conservation. So, you know, obviously we don't have this set up right now. Uh, we're looking for companies, but if guys are already going to purchase camo, they're going to get entered to win the hunt. So it's a win for, for them, you know, just an extra opportunity. But for us, you know, we have a strategic partner who, helps fund what we're trying to do. Yeah. And, you know, believe it or not, these companies, they believe in stuff too. And it's, it's not just bottom line for, for the companies that I work with, for sure. Like they're always doing stuff to, to support things that they believe in. And this, when you see a company jump on board with this, they're not just going to be trying to sell more jackets. They're going to be doing this because this is a mission that they support. So I think yeah. that that's pretty cool. Yeah, hopefully we'll get some some companies. We already have a few companies that are are looking at working with us, uh, like Matt Davis over at Final Rise. He's expressed a lot of interest. Uh, he's been super duper helpful. So you know, if you don't know what Final Rise is, they do bird vest, hand sewn uh, bird hunting vests made here in the U.S. And, you know, they're, they're going to work with us and we're, we're in discussion with other companies as well. So that's great. Yeah. It wouldn't necessarily be final rise for me because I miss a lot. So it might be like second to last rise or rise as many times as you want after that. <laughs> I did, however, last night, uh, go out and, uh, fire two shots and get two doves, which is by far my highest percentage ever on <laughs> dove hunting. Uh, so I might just quit dove hunting now. Not that's actually, a, but 
you know, a mic drop where you said, Hey, I got two and uh, you know, hundred, hundred percent here. I'm going home. <laughs> oh, okay. Moving on, moving on. Uh, how will access to the properties be managed a free for all or some sort of lottery? So what we're thinking right now is every property is going to be evaluated and we'll come up with some kind of a system for each property. So at, for example, let's say we buy our first, you know, 600 acre parcel, you know, a free for all doesn't really make sense for me, at least in, in my mind. And, and this is why we also will have a board so that it's not just me calling shots because I don't want that responsibility and I don't have enough knowledge where a board can really provide some insight. But, you know, going back to the, let's say 600 acres, right? Maybe we'll do something where the board decides it would be feasible to have one hunter on here a day. So any public hunter with a license and tag signs a waiver, first come, first serve, they get a jump on to the property. And, you know, it, it does, they don't have to be a member. This should be something that benefits anyone that's a public land hunter. And, you know, let's say down the road, we have 5,000 acres. Well, obviously that 5,000 acres is going to be able to support a lot more hunters than the 600 acres. And so we could say, okay, we can let 10 guys on to this and, you know, it, it can support 10 guys and maybe we'll have 10 different access points and, whatever. I, I don't know exactly, but just kind of what we're thinking at this moment. You know, that's a really fair answer. And it's something that's special about this model as compared to like managing, you know, 300 million acres of U.S. Forest Service or something like that. Like if you have most of the country or, you know, this giant swath of land, you have to make policies you know, it's like, okay, this is what we do over all of it. When you're dealing with something like this within the, the private sector, even though this is kind of a public private hybrid, you can be prescriptive about every single piece of land. And since you have knowledgeable people on your board as a steering committee, you can make really smart decisions that, that maximize the benefit to, to the land, to the wildlife and to the consumptive users of that. Yeah. Okay. So I think you already answered this, but I want to make this one clear. Uh, do you have to be a member to access the lands? Nope, absolutely not. And yeah. the way we're going to open up memberships or uh, access is through a few different venues. One, like we just discussed, where anyone with a valid license tag can come onto the property in a managed way. Uh, the other one is going to be by opening up events to the public. So really a big push for this is to leverage these properties to get new hunters and anglers involved in the sport. And what we want to do is host events with guys like yourself. You know, we're in discussion with guys like Ryan Lampers, and we want to host educational uh, events that anyone can come to. And obviously we'll have a cap on it. It's not going to be 10,000 people on the property, but you know, we'll, we'll open up these public events where guys can learn how to shoot a gun or, you know, just see what we're doing or participate in building a drinker, whatever it is, but yeah, we want access to be available to anyone. You were talking about uh, putting on a clinic for shadow casting, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. I'm, I'm really good at, uh, you know, I've watched a river runs through it at least a hundred times, just that <laughs> section to really learn how to shadow cast. So if guys yeah. are interested, I'm probably your man. Yeah. Um, I shadow cast with bobbers, which has a different, um, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know, effect. <laughs> it sounds kind of dangerous to be honest. <laughs> Especially... I recently... Yeah, I recently saw a video uh, on Fly Lords where a guy was casting and he makes what looks like a really good cast and then the fly whips around and sticks him in the cheek. Yeah. 
It kind of sounds like that to me. The, the cheek is a hot spot for, for <laughs> flies to get stuck in people. I'm surprised the ears doesn't happen more often, but you know, I get, I've been hooked more times than most uh, through guiding, especially I've been hooked a lot while guiding. Usually it's, it's neck or cheek, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever been hooked in the ear. I don't think I have court hooked himself in the ear when we were in Alaska. <laughs> he was state casting. That was pretty good. I've been, when I was guiding, I think I got hooked a lot, like neck and shoulder. Yeah. And those yeah. were, those are my hot spot areas. Yeah. Yeah. It, a guide's ability to like know when a cast is going wrong and absolutely hit the deck to get out of the way is pretty amazing. It's, it's like a, it's like mom sense or something. It's like, Ooh, that one's not going to be right. <laughs> You're getting down to the bottom of the boat. It's kind of, you know, the matrix uh-huh. movement where yep. you do some pretty crazy stuff to get out of the way. Yeah. Okay. Enough of that. I got to get back on, back on track here. Uh, what type of habitat improvements will be prioritized? I know it probably depends, but in general, do you see a certain improvement or improvements that are the best bang for your buck? Man, the biggest one that I see that seems universal is water. Yeah. And that's definitely going to be a big push for us. I mean, you know it better than anyone being a rancher in the West. We're experiencing a lot of droughts and that water is, I mean, absolutely crucial And so I think pretty much in all the states that we're looking at, water will be first and foremost. And after that, we'll maybe look at some other things. For instance, the property that we're currently looking at right now has had the majority of the sagebrush removed off of it, but it's in a critical area for sage grouse. And so we're looking at maybe doing some restoration work there for the sage grouse, which in turn would benefit the mule deer in the area just for some habitat where they can hide in and, you know, get a little cover. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And it is going to vary from place to place, but, you know, besides air, water is the thing that we all need the most, the quickest, right? Um, so we got to be able to breathe, then we got to be able to drink, and then we need food. And, you know, beyond that, it's like places to, to rest and, and procreate. And, uh, that's kind of, kind of the whole picture. So you can really get into the weeds with wildlife biology. And there's a term called the umwelt, which is like the entire spiderweb network of things that can impact, you know, a species. But generally speaking, I fully agree. Water is absolutely critical. If you're in an arid area, watering holes are the most dangerous place that a prey species ever goes because they have to go there. So their presence there is predictable and predators know that. So that's why they're so on edge when they come to water. If you can increase the number of sites that animals can water at, and then make sure that they have good water at those sites, that it's clean and healthy and it's not full of parasites that, you know, bog them down. uh, Then those predators get spread out as well as the prey animals. And, uh, it's just better for everything. So yeah, water, um, while it's not always easy is incredibly important and there are some easy ways to do it. Like you can install guzzler systems for a really minimal amount of money that are self-sustaining and work for a long time and benefit all kinds of wildlife. Yeah. Yeah. We're definitely looking into that and, you know, we're, we're, looking at what we can do that's going to have the best bang for the buck, right? Like guzzlers, wells, digging out ponds for rain catchment. I mean, anything that we can do to make those critical improvements, but still have it without spending a ton of money, basically. Yeah. How long will the ongoing expenses of owning and maintaining these properties be handled? Do they expect memberships to cover this and still find new acquisitions? Yeah, memberships, products, strategic uh, partnerships, all that is going to help fund the payments. And, you know, the good thing is having any kind of conservation easement or your piece of property in ag status really reduces your tax. And so, 
you know, we're going to, we're going to look into all that stuff. You know, there's some conservation easements that will work well for us and there's others that won't work at all. And so we just need to kind of vet that out property to property. But the idea generally is let's pay as little as we can on taxes and, you know, have the, the memberships and things fund this. Nice. Uh, this one is pointed directly at you, sir. Will the founder be working outside of American Icon? If he is not, will he be taking a salary from American Icon? I will be working outside of American Icon uh, with a separate company. So part of what we're doing is, is, you know, the ranching, for instance. So let's just use an example. I have a buddy who owns 65,000 acres. He's got several bison on there. With bison, from my understanding, you can kill one out of every five or six bison to maintain your herd size. And so if you have, let's say, a, a, on a large scale ranch, a thousand head of bison, and you need to kill 150 to 200 of those a year, it's just not feasible to have 200 hunters on a piece of property a year. And so we're going to take some of those and sell those to a meat company, a bison meat company, and turn a profit off of that. So, I mean, it's, it's still within the American icon wheelhouse, but it won't be taking money from, you know, the sale of wildlife or anything like that. Right. So I, th I think that the thrust of this question is that, uh, this is what you're working on. Like you're, you're committed to this is it's not a side hustle. Like you pushed all your chips forward on this one. Yeah. I put them all forward. I quit everything else that I was doing. And since November of 2021, I've been thinking about this and, and trying to come up with creative solutions. And like I said, I know I don't have all the answers, but this is it for me. Yeah. Like really. Nice. Will the properties have cattle on them? If so, at what capacity? They will have some cattle on them. We're working, you know, again, going back to the bison thing, we're either going to have bison or some uh, cattle. We, we have a guy here locally that runs miniature jerseys. We're in discussion with him. But the overall idea is that we run enough cattle or bison to open up more opportunities and fund salaries, things like that without negatively impacting the landscape. And, you know, as we've discussed throughout this podcast, every property is going to be different. And we're going to have to look at each one of those properties and make some decisions based on what the property can handle. Okay. How will landowner tags be given to subscribers? So we're going to anyone that's a member we're going to pick guys randomly and of those guys, we're going to look at what they've done individually. For instance, on this launch, if you've tagged friends, reposted things to your story, followed American icon and yourself, we're going to put those additional entries in and choose a winner out of those finalists. Yeah. Okay. Um, any coordination with local chapters of, of hunting based conservation organizations? Currently, no, but we are looking at working with several different ones in the future. I mean, we are completely open to work with the Mule, uh, Mule Deer Foundation, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. I've talked a little bit with some guys at Ducks Unlimited. So we're completely open to working with anyone and everyone. Uh, you know, we all have the same goal in in mind. So let's work together. Awesome. Somebody asked if there's any, uh, property prospects in Idaho. I think, you know, anything that, that fits the bill is, is on the table kind of wherever it's at. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have a piece of property that would be an absolute dream property in Idaho. I won't go into too much detail. So nobody snatches it up, but it's got springs on it. It's got a Creek flowing through it. It's got some ponds on it and the ability to dig more ponds. And it's got fantastic uh, deer 
an elk habitat and I think would be absolutely perfect for bison. So absolutely, yes, we're, we're looking in several different states. Currently, our top prospects uh, are in Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah, uh, just for the landowner tags. Nice. Will the private land access work similar to block management land in Montana? We, we kind of already answered this one, um, but yeah, it, it is actually fairly similar to block management or access and habitat in Oregon. Um, I think block management is, is more prescriptive, which is, uh, which is cool. Do individual states create more complexity for acquiring land than others? For sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's all sorts of rules and regulations, not only just with the land, the water rights. I mean, every state does water differently. And I know there's the age old saying that waters are whiskeys for drinking and waters for fighting. Yep. There's a lot of fighting going on for water. So, you know, that that definitely in and of itself is different in every state but also the landowner tags and what you can and cannot do with them are largely different in each state. And that's what I've spent a lot of my time researching since November is how do I legally give these things back to the public without getting slammed and getting a lawsuit against me. And, and so I've had to talk to all sorts of uh, like managers in the government and, and ask them questions like, how do I do this? Can I do this legally? And, you know, it's been, I've had to really feel it out, but, but yeah, it's every state is totally different. Yeah, definitely. Um, which is great. That's how the United States is supposed to work. States are supposed to be different. Yeah. Well, and if guys want to reach out to me, they can, ask me whatever they want, like hit me up on Instagram or whatever. I'm really trying my best to be transparent here. So guys can see what we're trying to do and feel comfortable with it. So ask away. There's really no questions that I'm going to, going to shy around. So, yeah, well, it's obvious, man. Um, it's obvious that you're trying to answer these questions honestly and earnestly and taking them to heart. I just, I think it's so cool that people care. You know, I spend, I'll spend $6 on something completely meaningless, completely meaningless and never think twice about it. You know, that is a fancy cup of coffee. Yeah. But when it comes to wildlife, what we care the most about, it's not about the $6 for these, for these folks that sent in questions. I'm sure of that, but they want to make sure that they're supporting something that is consistent with their beliefs. And I think that's wonderful. And if it's not consistent with your beliefs, that's perfectly okay. We just want you to have yeah. the information to make sure that, you know, you know exactly where your $5.99 is going to go. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And, and I want guys to understand that because like you said, Hey, if this, if some guy says this is stupid, I, I don't know what in the world you guys think you're going to accomplish with this by all means do not become a member, you know? And like you said, we put a lot of money into stuff that we just don't really need or care about at the end of the day. And I think you're spot on where guys just want to know where their money is going because they have a lifelong passion for this stuff. Yeah. Okay. So people have more questions. Uh, how do they get a hold of you? They can, Probably the best way is sending me a message on Instagram at Derek Boltheus. They can send me an email. I'll, I'll gladly give out my email address. It's Derek at AmericanIconCo.com. And they can ask me questions there. And I will do my best to get back to anyone and everyone that I can. I consistently spell your last name wrong. So can, can you hammer that one out? Yeah, it's O-L-T-H-U-I-S. Yeah. It's the, it's, it's the, the UI one. that the curve balls me. Yeah. yeah. Where's that come from? So it comes from Holland and, you know, when my ancestors came over to the States and Canada, they didn't want to pronounce it the way that it had always been pronounced with the, which is old Hewis. And so they changed it to a more, I, I guess, U S or Canadian sounding Ultheus. Yeah. It's a cool name. Yeah. It's interesting. It actually means old house. Yeah. 
sounds like old house. Yeah, yeah, which is fitting because my wife and I just bought a house from 1865, a pioneer home. Wow. Restoring it. So I'm actually sitting in the basement here. You can see our, our mess down here as we as we go and, and work on one room, we pull everything down, stick it down here in the basement where my office is. And so I have a little maze of stuff to get, get to my office. And then, you know, when we're done that room, we move stuff back in there. I bet you're going to find some treasures. Oh man. I found such cool treasure the other day. I was sanding the mantle and the mantle literally fell into my lap. And behind the mantle, a letter from 1877 had slipped in between the wall and the mantle. Yeah. And the, the owner of the house was uh, Frederick Walter Cox and, and his wife or daughter, I can't remember which one this was, but uh, Louisa Cox. And the, the letter was for Louisa Cox to come and pick up a parcel from the postmaster. I thought this thing has been sitting here for a hundred and what's that like 30 something years like how how wild is that it's amazing i wonder uh if the post office still has that parcel for her yeah i, I should go check <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm here to pick up my parcel they said uh, bring 50 cents to receive it so so 1865 that would have been before the union pacific railroad made it out there yeah yeah incredible what those people had to go through. Oh man. It, it makes me feel like a wimp because I sometimes find myself complaining, which as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm not a fan of complaining, but I'll be like, man, this is taking forever to sand this stupid door. And then I look at the door I'm working on and it's all hand planed. And I went, yeah, yeah, I'm a baby. Yeah. Somebody made this by hand and here I'm complaining with my power tools. I need to shut up. Yeah. Now, if I'm sitting on a long flight or something, I'll be like, ah, and like, oh, wait, oh, wait, I'm crossing the entire country in a single day. Like, yeah, it's, it's going to be all right. Yeah, it's pretty good. But yet <laughs> somehow we find joy in going into the wilderness and suffering. Well, yeah, because that we spent 60,000 years doing that, you know, if this uh, picking out the right recliner for me is a new thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Okay, buddy. Well, I appreciate very much um, just the candid answers that you gave. Like that's a, that's a rare thing. It's a rare thing in business for people to be like, Hey, here's the cards that I'm holding on to. And here's, here is how your interaction with this is going to work. I think that you, you should be commended for, for understanding that no one else is going to do it. You have to do it on your own, but not just on your own because there, there is a community forming up around this idea and it's going to work. It's a good idea. And with the right amount of effort, a good idea can become something tremendous. And I think this is the beginning of that. Oh man. I, I sure hope so. You know, We've talked about this, but my ultimate goal is to have hundreds of thousands of acres of land in trust so that we can really do something impactful. You know, giving away five landowner tags is impactful to the people that get them, but it's not impactful enough to make a long lasting change. And for me, that's what this is really all about. And that's why guys like yourself are so valuable to what we're doing. I'm not a rancher. I don't have that experience, but you've already provided me with a lot of insight that said, Hey, you could make an improvement here. And I go, Oh, that's awesome. Because I didn't look at it from that perspective. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to, ha to have guys like yourself and, and other people that we're in discussion with jumping into this and, and supporting it because the more people we have, the better it becomes and the more likely we can take it to that hundreds of thousands of acres put in trust. Yep. Sounds good, man. Well, thank you for your time. Yeah. And uh, folks, if you have more questions, please do reach out to, to Derek um, or myself. I don't necessarily have the questions, but I can get them for you. Okay. Hope you have a great day, man. It's great talking to you. Yeah, as always. And let's hit the woods one of these days. Yeah. It's that time. Yes, it is. All right. Catch you later. Hey, bye.
I'm working on building a house this year, which is something that I know nothing about. And I love that. It's exciting. Uh, everything is a new challenge and there's lots of challenges that pop up. The other day we were laying out rebar and getting ready to pour concrete for the foundation of the shop that's going to be next to the house. And one of the guys that was there that was helping one of the construction crewmen, I looked over and he had a Stanley thermos sitting on the end of the trailer. I said, how do you like that thing? And he goes, oh, I love it. I've had it for a decade. It's like, you know, if you find any environment where people are out there working hard, working hard with their hands outside, no matter the conditions, you're probably going to see a Stanley product there. It's something that just goes with that blue collar labor, because that's what this product is doing. It is out there working just as hard as you are. It's going to be there as long as you are. It's going to be there after you're done. It's something that, that I feel passionate about with every piece of gear that I take either into the woods or into the workplace, like it's got to be able to outwork me. And I work really hard myself. If you are also a hard worker, and I'm sure that you are, then you could probably appreciate the same type of gear. If you go to stanley1913.com and you use the discount code six ranch, that's the number six and the word ranch, you can get 25% off just about any of their products. And I encourage you to do that. They're a great supporter of this show and a great supporter of this audience. Again, I love you guys. And I just want to pass this, uh, this discount and the savings on to you. If you want something from Stanley, I encourage you to get it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.